As you're being seated, I'd uh, welcome you to turn in your Bibles uh, or bring it up on a device, uh, your phone, maybe the, you have a version app, a Bible app on your phone. Mark chapter 5 uh, is where we're going to be. We're going to continue in our series going through the book of Mark today. I want to invite or introduce to you our speaker. Uh, his name is George Panna. George is one of our elders uh, here at Hope Church. We, uh, our ministry staff, uh, lead with, lead Hope Church with a team of elders, uh, 10 men that have been elected from the congregation. Uh, we meet together every month. We pray together. We pray for you. We think about vision and values and finances and staff things. And, and, and this is the team that helps lead uh, Hope Church. And George is a part of that team. George and Mary Beth uh, have been a part of Hope Church from day one. Uh, back nine years ago, nine years in September when Hope Church started, George and Mary Beth are a part of that team and have really been a part of the leadership of Hope Church from uh, day one. They both have a love, a deep love for Hope Church, this community, and the Word. And I'm excited for George to open God's Word uh, for us today. So would you welcome George Panna this morning. When Tom asked me to preach this week, first thing I did was to take a look at the text and said, oh, thanks a lot. <laughs> you got one of those topics that is controversial because it deals with demons, deliverance, spiritual warfare. And in the church, there's a variety of views on that. In the culture, there's a variety of views on that. But one thing we want to take a look at is what Jesus had to say. It's interesting because the disciples came to Jesus and asked him, Lord, teach us to pray. And he taught them, well, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Deliver us from the evil one. Now, if you grew up learning the King James Version or you have the ESV, it'll say deliver us from evil. And there'll be a little footnote there that says or evil one. If you look at all the other translations, they're going to say, deliver us from the evil one. And there'll be a little footnote there that says, or from evil. But either way you look at it, we see from God's word, we see from Jesus himself that there is evil in this world. And we also see there's an answer to that evil in this world. It comes from an individual, and the individual's name is Satan or the devil. Satan is real. Jesus believed that Satan was real, and he told us as his followers to pray, Lord, deliver us from the evil one. And so that's the title of the message today. It's something that we need to be asking ourselves. Are we praying that we would be delivered from the evil one and his influence in our lives? Have you learned that Jesus is indeed your deliverer? And looking at the Gospels, back in the late 1800s, A.B. Bruce 
studied it and came up with this classic called The Training of the Twelve. Very detailed look at Jesus' teaching of the disciples. And it, he made a very, very insightful observation. He noted, the humble fishermen of Galilee had much to learn. They were indeed godly men, but at the time of their call, they were exceedingly ignorant, narrow-minded, superstitious, full of Jewish prejudices, misconceptions, and animosities. They had much to unlearn of what was bad, as well as much to learn of what was good. And they were very slow to both learn and to unlearn. You know, Mark's gospel, more than any of the others, point out how slow the disciples were to both unlearn and to learn. Have we ever thought about there are things in our lives we need to unlearn, to get rid of? There are, because they hinder us from clearly seeing things as they really are. If we have a distorted view of something, if we have a distorted view of God, a distorted view of ourselves, a distorted view of someone else, maybe a family, a neighbor, we view everything through that grid, which then means it's not an accurate view. He continues, Old beliefs already in possession in their minds made communication of new religious ideas a difficult task. Men of good, honest heart, the soil of their spiritual nature was fitted to produce an abundant harvest, but it was stiff and needed much laborious tillage before it would yield its fruit. In other words, how about us? How's our heart this morning? Are we still harboring narrow-mindedness, superstitions, prejudices, misconceptions, animosities? Are we willing to allow the Holy Spirit to unroot those from us. You know, one of the things about if you get a weed in the garden, if you just go over there and pluck off the weed, if you don't get the root, it grows right back. Matter of fact, you do that a couple of times and then all of a sudden, you, you, wait a minute, it keeps coming back and then when you dig it out, it's got this tremendous root system now. Once more, we have to allow the Lord to root it out for us. So where's your heart this morning? As we're looking at the concept of spiritual warfare and demonic realm, we understand there are a variety of views on this. The secular world says there's no such thing. But let's take a look at what the culture has had to say on this. In 1970, there was a comedian by the name of Flip Wilson. And he introduced us to the Reverend, or Rev, and his wife, Geraldine. Let's take a look at what Geraldine thought of spiritual warfare. She came in the house, she had the box, Rev saw it. Rev said, what, another dress? This is ridiculous. Three dresses in a week, another dress? And she tells him, I didn't want to buy this dress. <laughs> made me buy this. <laughs> she said, I was going down the street. I was minding my own business, singing to myself. I said, what you said? <laughs> and the devil stopped following me, telling me how good I look. 
Rev said, I'm not going for that. He said, because every time you do something wrong, you blame it on the devil. So you blamed it on the devil when you ran the car on the side of the church. She tells him, it was the devil. You wasn't there, how do you know? Said, he grabbed that steering wheel out of my hand. Rev said, well, why didn't you step on the brake? She tells him, because when he grabbed the steering wheel, I tried to kick him. I can't kick him and step on the brake at the same time. Said, we had a big fight. That's why I was in the back seat when y'all got the call. Rev said, well, how the devil get you to buy the dress? She said, I was going down the street, I was singing, what you say on me every day. And I heard the devil coming up behind me with tiptoeing. And I said to myself, I'm not going to look back because I know it's the devil. <laughs> and then he sneaked up and leaned over my shoulder and said, Say, mama, look at that dress in the window there. Said, it's on sale. Said, that's your size too. Got a lot of flowers. You know you like a lot of flowers. Why don't you treat yourself to that dress? I said, cut that out, devil. I ain't buying no dresses. You better leave me alone, honey. <laughs> The devil said, well, why don't you try it on? You can try it on. Rev will never know about you trying it on. It's free. They're not going to charge you nothing to try it on. You owe yourself a try on. I said, I'm not even trying it on, devil. I'm not even going to go in there and look at it. That's when the devil shoved me in the door. He <laughs> said, the devil shoved me in the door. I said, cut that out, devil. And he pushed me over to where the dress was. And he threatened me and made me try it on. Then he pulled a gun and made me sign your name to a check. Rev said, how come the devil's always making you do something for yourself? When's the devil gonna do me a favor? She said, I asked him about that. He said he did already. Devil said if it wasn't for him, you wouldn't even have a job. So we can see three perspectives there. We have Geraldine's, the devil's making her do everything, like especially buying those dresses. And then we see the Rev going, no, that ain't so. And then we can hear the audience laughing, and of course it's ridiculous the devil's making her do something because there is no such thing as the devil. Now that was in 1970. The following year in 1971, a book was released that became one of the top sellers on the New York Times bestsellers list. Two years after that, 1973, it became a blockbuster movie known as The Exorcist. Raise your hand if you've seen The Exorcist. You? Okay, quite a few. Okay, you can put your hands down. Raise your hand if you saw it twice. <laughs> we got a few brave souls in here, I'll tell you that. Whoa, now the rest of us... Why didn't we see it a second time? If you were like me, my brother and I came from college. We drove in from Hiram College to see it in Cleveland. On the way back, we're driving back like this. <laughs> we're afraid to open our closet door when we got back to the dorm. We didn't know what was in there, right? It scared the daylights out of us. But that's also a ploy of the devil to make us afraid of him. Now, while there are those individuals who are so demonically controlled that they can do some supernatural things, that's not how he usually works. By the way, for those of you who did not see the movie, 
It was based on a 1949 account, and they changed it a little bit, but it was a 12-year-old girl who was so severely demonically controlled that supernatural things were going on. And uh, the story is about two Catholic priests who came to do a deliverance, an exorcism, to release her from that. And uh, once more, we have those varying views. So the question I want to ask you is, which view do you hold to? Flip Wilson's Geraldine. And by the way, the reverend asked her, well, didn't you quote scripture to her? Didn't you say, get thee behind me, Satan? By the way, Geraldine said, I did. But he said, it looked good from back there, too. <laughs> or do you think that that's the face of demons? We'll see what the Bible has to say about that. The reality is, when we become Christians, we enter a cosmic struggle because Satan hates people who believe in Jesus. Satan's limited power, Satan's limited power, I'll say it one more time, Satan's limited power is launched against believers individually and the church in general. I would also say the church in particular, certain churches in particular, if a church is not impacting the kingdom of darkness by spreading the kingdom of light, I think they kind of leave it alone. But if a church is impacting the kingdom of darkness because through that church the kingdom of light is expanding and people are coming to saving faith, I'll guarantee you there's a target there. And the spiritual warfare is going to be coming at that church. Or the church in general hoping to sink us into the depths of the sea, but we have the ultimate power on our side and the final victory is assured. Jesus should be our Savior, yes, our Deliverer to whom we can turn with all our needs and fears, knowing that He does care and will help. Two weeks ago, Pastor Jeff was instructing us about the parables of Jesus in Mark chapter 4, and one in particular stood out. That's the, the parable of the farmer and the seed and the different types of soil. We saw that the soil that fell on the path was eaten up by birds that Jesus said represented Satan who comes in and snatches away that seed of truth, the seed of the gospel before that person can understand it, believe and receive it into their lives. Satan steals it. Then he also talked about that seed that falls among the thorns and the thorns rise up and choke it out. And those thorns, he said, represented the worries of this life the deceitfulness of wealth and desire for other things. Regarding the seed that fell on the rocky ground, he said that represented trouble or persecution when they fall away. Franklin Graham had a book written on rocks, dirty birds, and briars in which the whole book's based on that one parable. And he said, troubled times will either soften us or cause rebellion to set in. The remedy is to refuse the unwelcome caller. Don't even listen to the knock on the door. When our hearts are cold and stony towards the things of God, it reveals we have already opened our heart's door to Satan. Why would we even want to give him a stepping stone into our lives? Do not sin, the Bible says, nor give place to the devil. Now, some translations will take that last portion and say, nor give the devil a foothold. In the Greek, 
the word is topos, T-O-P-O-S. We get our word topography from it. It means a smaller piece of ground in a larger piece of land. So a portion of a larger piece. And so what Paul is writing to the Ephesians believers is do not give part of yourself away to Satan. Don't give him a foothold into your mind or into your heart, some aspect of your life. So we see that warning for us. Last week, Pastor Jeff taught us from Mark about Jesus calming the storm on the Sea of Galilee. Warren Wiersbe in his commentary had this aspect to look at. The same day refers to the day on which Jesus gave the parables of the kingdom. He hadn't been teaching his disciples the word, and now he would give them a, ooh, that word we don't like, practical test, to see how much they really learned. After all, the hearing of God's word is intended to produce faith, and faith must always be tested. It is not enough to merely learn a lesson or be able to repeat a teaching, we must also be able to practice that lesson by faith. And that is one of the reasons why God permits trials to come into our lives. Are you going through trials right now in your life? In a room this size, there are people who are going through trials. Some of you have just been through some trials. And once more, we see their tests, tests of our faith. God is drawing us deeper into our relationship with him. He continues, did Jesus know the storm was coming? Of course he did. The storm was a part of the day's curriculum. It would help the disciples understand a lesson they did not even know they needed to learn. Jesus can be trusted in the storms of life. Have you ever considered each day when you get up in the morning to be part of God's curriculum for you? That there's those areas in your life he knows you need to work on? That he's going to be drawing you into a closer relationship with him through the things he allows to come through your way? For me, one of the things I pray in the morning is for the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. I'm a retired school teacher and I've been going back substituting. And when you get in a classroom of seventh graders, I see a lot of testing of patience, kindness, and self-control on a daily basis. Those of you who are teachers know what I'm talking about, whatever grade level you teach. And so those are opportunities for me to display God's love, and God's grace. So, as they finish crossing over the sea, they just had this tremendous storm settled with a simple word, peace, be still. Jesus, in the Greek, Jesus used the exact same words to the demon-possessed man in the synagogue in Mark chapter 1. Told him to be quiet. Cast him out. 
So Jesus, we see, has power not only over an individual demon within an individual person, we see he has power over all of nature. And the disciples are scared to death. Who is this man that has such power? So that was one of the lessons of the day. The day's curriculum's not over. Now they're landing on the other side. Let's take a look at Mark chapter 5. They went across the lake to the region of the garrisons. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. First of all, as we look at this text, the region of the garrisons is the Gentile region on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. And so, in essence, we see Jesus crossing over the sea to go into enemy territory, Gentile territory, if you will, to share the kingdom of light. And who's the first person he runs into? A demon-possessed individual. Now, notice that this man lived in the tombs. He had an unclean spirit, and he lived in an unclean place, in the tombs, in the graveyard of those who were deceased. Also notice that the people who tried to deal with this guy, society tried to deal with him. How? By chaining him up, by trying to, to imprison him in some way. The word that says subdue him in the Greek actually means to tame like you would tame a wild animal. They don't know what to do with this guy. Let's just, just try to bind him up. And yet the demon inside him is so strong, he just breaks the chains. They don't know what to do with him. He's out running around the hills and the tombs, screaming at the top of his lungs and cutting himself with stones. We see the demons desire to harm us. That's part of their intent. The text continues. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus has said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion. He replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. Now notice this. The demons know who Jesus is. The demon in Mark chapter 1, he cried out, Jesus, son of the most high God. Here we see the demon run towards Jesus And he does what? He bows down before Christ. He announces who he is. You are the son of the most high God. And notice what he does. He begs him, don't torture us. Over and over again. That shows you demons know know who is in control. They know where the power comes from. 
They're doing all these horrible things to this man, and yet notice something else about Satan? Jesus, please have mercy on us, even though we haven't had mercy on this individual, even though we've been torturing this individual, even though we've been carving him up with stones. Please don't torture us. Whoa. Hey, please don't do to me what I'm doing to you. His name is Legion, for we are many. Legion was a Roman military unit like we would have today in the United States military, a battalion. That was a legion. A legion was made up of 6,000 soldiers at its maximum, four to 6,000 soldiers. So we're looking at, in essence, he's, uh, he's saying there's many of us in here. There's thousands of demons in this man, number one. And number two, he's also saying something else. The legion was the most powerful military force in the world at that time. He's announcing, we are the most powerful demonic force there is. There's a legion of us in here. As they bow down before him, as they beg him again and again, don't torture us. Please have mercy on us. The text continues. And a large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs. Allow us to go into them. He gave them permission and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank in the lake and were drowned. Now, first of all, you need to know something about pigs. They're not like cattle. They're not a, a group that would... Uh, uh, panic in a herd. If a, one of the uh, cows panics, you can get a stampede because they all panic. They don't know what's going on, but they all just start fleeing and running and going in the direction of what's going on. I have no idea, but we just better get going. Pigs aren't like that. So the clear indication from the text is there were literally at least 2,000 demons because a demon went into each pig at least. Then notice what the demon does once they're in the pigs. <laughs> They rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. You see that destructive nature of the demonic realm? Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and the countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. This is the individual they had chained. This is the individual they tried to tame. This is the individual they had no solution for. And now he's sitting there clothed. He had been naked. I believe he was healed of all those wounds. Sitting in his right mind with Jesus. Now I'm sure it took him a long time to go into the town, to go into the countryside, tell everybody what had happened. Because when they come back, I'm sure Jesus has been talking to him about who he is, about what he's done. As we continue, goes on to state that those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Matthew says they especially talked about what happened to the demon-possessed man. Oh, by the way, the pigs as well. Notice the people who are afraid because something they had no power to do 
Jesus had done. They couldn't even control this guy. Jesus has healed this guy. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave the region. The demons pleaded with Jesus to send them into the pigs. The people plead with Jesus to leave. They're too afraid of him. They want nothing to do with him. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your own people. Tell them how much the Lord has done for you, how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. Notice Jesus says, Go back to your family. Go back to the love you've been separated from because of these demons. Restore that relationship. Restore your marriage. Restore your family. Restore your friends. Oh, by the way, tell them the good things the Lord has done for you. Now notice in the text, the man goes home, but doesn't just stop at home. He goes to the Decapolis. That is a 10-city region east of the Jordan River. He goes from town to town to town telling people what Jesus has done for him. You know, the Lord has given us the exact same mission. That's simply to tell people how much Jesus has done for us in our homes, in our neighborhoods, where we work. We have that same command. Okay. I can see Jesus can cast out thousands of demons, but you know what? I don't think I'm ever going to run across a person that's got several thousand demons in them. I don't need to worry about that. And I don't believe in Geraldine and how she's thinking the devil's making her do everything like that. So I'm okay, right? No. Let's take a look at this and see what the big picture is, the grand picture of what's going on. When you're young, the life ahead of you is a pristine, never-opened book. It has that intoxicating new book smell. You're just cracking the cover. The pages are white and clean. You absolutely know there's a grand story ahead. When you're very young, you could be a cowboy or a ballerina. In the glory of youth, you and your friends are pirates, widely adored pop stars, superstar athletes, or a queen whose rule is just and kind. Later, the fantasies fade, but the dreams become more focused. Maybe you'll be the first human being on Mars, or the inventor of a great new thing. The story is whatever you want it to be, and you're still in the opening pages of your great novel. You know, though, that the story will be great. You know you have a destiny, a purpose in this life. Some of those dreams are your own, it's true. But some of those dreams, those hopes of destiny, are from God. As we grow older, some of those dreams begin to fade, washed in pain, cynicism, and failure. Something unnamed repaints the horizon. The mundane, agonizing details of life build and build like bricks. Soon, we are too weary of wrestling with our everyday existence to find grand visions of destiny. Even our relationship with God, which seems so wonderfully beautiful and life-giving at first, dims. We don't stop walking, but we may as well. 
what toxin is this that can turn a wide-eyed dream into a grinding drudge? It's as if we all woke up one morning under a curse we couldn't shake. We push on, one foot in front of the other, but we stop wondering why. The next thing we know, we've got rocks in our shoes and lungs lined with dust. The curse, though, is not a metaphor. The curse is a lie all of us buy into, sometimes suddenly, sometimes slowly, like a frog in a pot. The lie breaks our hearts and it scatters us in different ways. Some of us find shelter in religious discipline. Some seek solace and cynicism and unchecked deconstruction. Some are driven away completely. Then we place blame on ourselves, others close to us, our religious systems, the government, or God himself. Some of this blame is valid for sure. Here is the lie in two parts. We do not see God as he is, and we do not see ourselves as we are. We all believe the lie to some degree. Suddenly, the road we've been journeying along splits. Which path do we choose? Well, that's tricky. Throughout all of history, the cure has never come in the form we expected. See how soon it starts? Those <laughs> dreams just being dashed, even at an early age. It's because we believe a lie. As a matter of fact, we begin to leave, believe a lot of lies. We're in a fallen world. It's filled with lies and deception. Well, George, where do you get that from? Well, let's take a look at Scripture. In John chapter 8, Jesus said, speaking to the Pharisees who had denied that who Jesus was, you are of your father the devil and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. John continues in his epistle, 1 John in chapter 5 verse 19, and we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Then later he writes in Revelation chapter 12, And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. So when we think of the world's systems and we think of the world's religions and we think of the world's cultures, Scripture clearly says that they are under the deception of the evil one, Satan, the father of lies. And as children growing up, going to the playground, whatever it may be, we just begin to get this. We don't even know what's what. Sometimes we're deliberately lied to. But the bottom line is that filters into our system. Let's take a look then at what the word deception means and that this will be helpful because this is the goal of the great deceiver to act, it's the act of hiding the truth especially to get an advantage. The act of hiding the truth. He doesn't want us to know the truth. God's word is the word of truth. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth who guides us into all truth, who points us to Jesus who is the truth, the way and the life. No one can come to the Father except through Christ. God is truth. His word is truth. 
That word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. His goal is the act of hiding the truth from your life. To make people believe that something is true when it is not, he wants you to believe the lies. As we already heard, lies about God. Get, try to deceive us that God is something different than who he is. Lies about ourselves. Lies about our spouses, our friends, our neighbors, our children, our work colleagues. To give a mistaken impression, to fail to admit to oneself that something is untrue. Interesting, when we look at some of the synonyms, for deceive and we compare them. The word deceive implies imposing a false idea or belief that causes ignorance, bewilderment, or helplessness. That's the goal of the evil one. Mislead means, implies a leading astray, leading us astray, says it may or may not be intentional. In the case of Satan, it's always intentional. He wants to lead us away from the Lord. Delude implies deceiving so thoroughly as to obscure the truth. The example they give is we were deluded into thinking we were safe. Satan wants to delude us on certain things. And the last one, the interesting one here, is beguile. Beguile means stresses the use of charm and persuasion in deceiving. See, so many of us, when we think of the demons, we actually go and we think of Linda Blair in The Exorcist and that horrifying face. But you know what? If a demon showed up like that, we'd all go, it's a demon. Would we listen to it? No. See, Satan's not stupid. Satan is the great deceiver. Satan beguiles us, charms us, with this falsehood. One of the books I had to read in seminaries required reading in our theology class on angelology and demonology. It's called Spirit of the Rainforest. It's a very difficult read because it's about the shaman in the Amazon among the Yamana, Yanomamo people and how these shamans came to faith in Christ and it's the life story of one of the shamans and the murders, the rapes, the baby killings, the enslavement, all the horrors that they do. But listen to this, the one who wrote the story at the end of the book. He says this, I wish I had known the truth about God when I was a young man. It would have saved me so much pain and misery. But how could I? He was a shaman who had spirits living in him. My spirits lied so much to me and tricked me. They were so beautiful, so wonderful, so hard not to want. They were the best at telling me a split truth. So as we wrap up, I have to ask the question, Have you been beguiled? Have you been deluded? Have you been misled? Have you been deceived? Is there something in your life right now that the Holy Spirit wants to bring to your attention? Something maybe he's already been speaking about 
Some people came up to me after the service and they said, this is what we've been going through in our family. I had several families say, this is what we've been dealing with. Needing to get to the truth. You see, he wants to keep you from that relationship with himself. God, Satan wants to keep you from a relationship with God. God wants to draw you into a love relationship that's real and personal, that's intimate. Satan doesn't want to see that. Scripture says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Scripture says, you know, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. You know, we're called sheep and Jesus is our shepherd. You know what sheep the lion goes after? The one furthest away from the shepherd. That's why scripture says, draw near to God, he will draw near to you. The closer you are to the shepherd, you need not fear. You need not fear. But what is it he wants to do? He wants to mislead. He wants to what? Lead you astray, lead you away from your relationship with Jesus so he can get you out here all alone. Someone right now may be feeling that. You're no longer as close to the Lord as you once were. There are trials going on in my life. How could God allow that? Are you believing the lies that Satan brings when we go through pain? God's there to plant his seed of truth in your heart when you're going through difficult times, and Satan's right there planting his seeds, his lies, to get you to drop away from God. We're going to take some time now to give you an opportunity to pray to the Lord. Lord Jesus, Deliver me from those lies I believed and I've allowed to affect my life, my family, and my relationship with you.